continue our preach series. Um, we're looking at Exodus and the patterns of salvation. Ali kicked off the series last week. He set the whole context um, and particularly looked at the call of Moses and how um, uh, Moses was called by God that salvation for the Hebrews was God's plan. It, it, it was his response to the Israelites' prayer. It was his response, his initiation. He made the plan. He acted on the back of it. He was going to be the great deliverer. And so um, this morning, we're going to be carrying on with that. And uh, I'm going to have the joy, the privilege of looking at maybe one of the trickier um, passages um, in the Bible. So if you've got your Bibles, turn initially to Exodus chapter 5. Um, I'm not going to just sit there. We're going to be looking through Exodus 5, 7, eight, nine, and uh, possibly even get far as ten, and uh, we're going to be working our way through that. As you're turning to your Bible, I want you to multitask. I'd love you just to give a bit of thought to, if I ask you the question, well, I'm asking you the question, what is God like? What is God like? How would you describe him? How would you describe him? I won't ask you because of time, but if I ask you to turn to your neighbour and, you know, just start to, uh, uh, if I ask you to turn to your neighbour and start to maybe just say a few phrases or words that would uh, reflect his characteristics, his character, who he is, what he does, what sort of words would you come out with? What sort of things would be there? You know, you may, some, you may say something like, I think of God like this. Or I imagine God to be like that. Um, and there can always be a danger for us, any of us, that if we're not careful, we make God in our own image. We come up with a picture of God that really suits us rather than the one described in the Bible. And so as we look at uh, this, these passages in Exodus, um, I think we're going to look at some accounts that are going to stretch our view of God. We're probably going to get stretched out of our comfort zone. We may even be left with some questions that we find it hard to answer or even hear things about God that we don't really quite like. You know, if it was a God of our imagining, we may not put some of these things in there. We're going to be looking at the plagues, salvation and God's victory. Now, we're not going to look at all 10 plagues because um, Andrew will be preaching on the 10th plague next week. But I've got the joy of preaching on the first nine plagues and um, just looking to see what does that speak to us for our salvation here and now. What shadows do we see there? What do we see um, about God? I'm just going to pray. Lord, I ask you, would you really help me, enable me to use the time wisely and to uh, spend time in the areas you'd want me to spend it in? I ask you, would you enliven our minds? Would you soften our hearts? Would you make us open to all you want to speak to us about? We ask for that in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. So Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, it says um, this. And this is on the back of Moses returning to Egypt after his encounter with God. And he comes before Pharaoh and... Uh, this is what he says. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may, that they may, hold, <clears throat> they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, 
Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, Pharaoh was the king of Egypt. He, he was a massively powerful person. In actual fact, probably the most powerful individual in the Near East at that time. There, there wasn't anyone that would rival him. But he wasn't just a powerful um, national leader. He was also an intermediary between the gods and the people. Thus, Pharaoh deputized on behalf of the Egyptian gods. His role was both civil and religious. He owned all the land in Egypt. He enacted the laws. He collected the taxes. He defended Egypt from invaders. He was Egypt's commander-in-chief. Religiously, he officiated over various ceremonies that would have taken place in Egypt. And he chose the sites for the temples. Pharaoh was the undisputed king of Egypt What he said went, there isn't a modern day politician, king, that comes anywhere close to the amount of power that Pharaoh had, both religiously and politically. He said it, it happened, and these two shepherds rock up and say, some god that he's never heard of says, let my people go. Now, you've got to remember that the Hebrew nation had now grown to about 2 million people, men, women, and children, and the whole um, economy of Egypt is based on their slave labor. You know, the pyramids being built and the uh, agriculture of the fields and the bricks that are getting made. Egypt wouldn't have been nearly as prosperous if it hadn't been for 2 million Hebrew slaves. There is no way that Pharaoh is going to let them go. And anyway, why would Pharaoh listen to the God of whoever he may be, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, a tribal God who, when the Israelites turned up, there was only 70 of them with Joseph. Over the last 400 years, okay, they'd multiplied, but they were in slavery. What sort of God has a nation of slaves? Pharaoh is not going to let Israel go. There is no way. And actually, you see that disdain in how Pharaoh answers Moses Moses and Aaron. He says, who is the Lord? Why should I obey him? Why would I let Israel go? In actual fact, I'm not going to let Israel go. And in actual fact, just to show my disdain for you, Moses and Aaron, and this God of the Hebrews, I'm going to give them extra work to do. They can not only make the bricks, they can collect the straw for the bricks as well, just to show that as Pharaoh, I am taking no notice of what you say. You are nothing, nor is your God. That would have been Pharaoh's perspective. And what we find here are the battle lines being drawn up. Now, we, we can look because we know the end of the story, and we can be thinking, oh, Pharaoh, this is highly unwise. This is not going to end well for you. But, but at the time, this Hebrew God was totally insignificant. Let's move it on to Exodus chapter 7. So this first encounter with Pharaoh doesn't go so well. So they come, they regroup God, Moses and Aaron. And this is what God says to Moses. The Lord said to Moses, um, chapter 7 verses 1 to 7. 
See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron should be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by my acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out, my people of Israel, out, out the people of Israel from among them. And Mo- Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Just a small aside... I, I, I work from this. Any of you under the age of 80? A few of you? Right, you're still in training, okay? So up to the age of 80, you're in training. By the time you get to about 80, 83, you're in your prime, okay? That, that's, that's when God really calls you um, into uh, uh, activity. I mean, in all seriousness, actually, I, did, I felt this just as I was prepping. I think there's, there's some of you here, and, and we, we are a church for everyone. Different ages, different backgrounds, different abilities, different nationalities. We love having the young among us. We love having the elderly here too. And I, I just want to say that, you know, although you may retire from your employment and you'll, prov- you'll get your means provided by other things, um, you never retire from God. In actual fact, once you retire, you're more useful to God probably than you were before because you don't have two bosses anymore. You only have one boss. He can have all your time. And it's good to rest, it's good to relax, it's good to enjoy family, friends, it's good to have a change in lifestyle. But, but don't, don't get in your mind, I can't wait till I retire from God, when things get quiet. Moses and Aaron, 80 and 83, in the prime of life to fulfil the purposes of God in their generation. Just a, just a little comment. So who is it that's going to deliver Israel? Moses? Aaron? God? Whose who's battle is it? What I notice is definitely that God uses Mo, Moses and Aaron. He says to Moses, you're going to be like God. Aaron, you're going to be his prophet. But what I notice in this passage that we have just read is it says things like, this is what God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I multiply my signs and wonders. I lay my hand on Egypt. I will bring out my hosts. I stretch out my hand. And time after time after time, we notice that this is God's battle. This is God's war. This is God's plan. Alid was saying it last time. This is God's purposes. And the battle lines are drawn. And as we step into the plagues, we see that this isn't Moses and Aaron. This isn't their wisdom. This isn't their great strategy. This is God, one step at a time, delivering his people. And the first thing that we find in plague one is we find that water is turned into blood. I I went to that very reliable source of Wikipedia and I found out that the Nile is 4,000 miles in length and discharges 3.1 million litres a second into the Mediterranean. Moses stretches out his staff, touches the Nile, and it turns to blood. All the fish die. Even the water that is stored in the pots turns to blood. Why? Because God is on a mission. God is going to deliver his people out of the hand of Pharaoh. 
3.1 million litres a second. Wow. Pharaoh's magicians could do the same thing. Just on a smaller scale, they could do the same thing. And it says in chapter 7, verse 23, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. Wow. The Nile, the life source, turned to blood. What's the second plague? Frogs in your bed. Can you imagine it? Again, Moses says, look, Pharaoh, if you will not turn around, if you will not change your mind, there will be a plague of frogs. Can you imagine it tonight? You pull back the covers and some little green friends looking back at you there. You open the oven to put the roast dinner in when you get back from lunch. They're already there, sat there, looking at you. Wherever you turn, there are frogs absolutely everywhere. Pharaoh asks for them to be removed, but then he changes his mind and says, I will not let the Hebrew slaves go. Plague free, covered in gnats. Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the ground, and it turns into gnats. You know what it's like on a hot day? You've probably forgotten already. On a hot day, down by the water, there's mosquitoes, there's gnats everywhere, and you just, oh, how annoying and frustrating. God sent a serious plague of gnats across Egypt. Why? Because he'd promised, this is his plan, this is his purpose. I will deliver Israel out of the Egyptians' hands. Now at this point, even Pharaoh's magicians say, do you know what? This is the finger of God. They realise they, they can't do this. This is the finger of God. So even Pharaoh's magicians, by the time we hit the third plague, are realising there is a different power this is not just some regional deity. This isn't just some tribal God. Something is happening here. He is bigger. He is stronger. He is mightier. Plague four. Flies everywhere. Can you imagine it on your food? When you sleep, you wake up and there's flies in your face and in your hair. Everywhere. But not in Goshen. Not among the Israelites. The Israelites were fly free. The Egyptians were covered in flies. Plague five, the livestock die. The Egyptian livestock die. Not all of them, but the vast majority of them die from a plague. But the Hebrews' livestock doesn't die. I mean, that's got to grab your attention, hasn't it? You're looking around and, and, and again, the economy of Egypt would be based on agriculture, so, 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 so the cattle and the sheep and the goats, this, this is where their finances all. And, and, and not necessarily overnight, but in a short time, they're just dropping. They're dropping dead. But, but the Israelites aren't. Now it gets a bit closer to home. Next, plague six is boils the size of golf balls. It doesn't actually say that in the text that they're a golf ball size, but I just added that in for artistic license. Just to, do you mean? It's not originally in there or anything like that, but I just thought, yeah, it gets your attention. On every person in Egypt, and it says here that the magicians couldn't stand before Moses and Aaron. So they're not just saying this is the finger of God. Now the Egyptian magicians can't even stand before them. I guess it must be they are so covered in boils that they are unable to stand before them. 
Still, Pharaoh hasn't changed his mind. Plague 7. A little bit more artistic license, I've got to admit. Hail the size of tennis balls falls from heaven. We don't know the size. It could have been bigger, could have been smaller. It's interesting that Moses warns Pharaoh and his servants and he tells them to bring any remaining livestock and any people inside under shelter so that they would not die. That specific instruction is given. And it says in verse 20, Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into his houses. There was no hail on the Israelites. Plague 8. Locusts devour what is left. So anything left of the crops that wasn't destroyed by the hail, again, these locusts turn up. Moses says, Pharaoh, let my people go. He won't. He says, if you don't, I'm going to send swarms of locusts on the land that will devour anything that is green, anything that is edible. They're going to eat the whole lot. It's it's going to go. I mean, Pharaoh is a seriously stubborn man. But he won't budge. Then plague nine. Darkness for three days, that could be felt. I don't know if I've ever felt darkness before. But it doesn't sound very nice, does it? In Egypt, darkness for three days. The Israelites in Goshen, bright sunlight. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. Three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. And then lastly, plague 10. The death of the firstborn. Nine plagues to this point. Still Pharaoh will not let, will not let his people go. Now Andrew's going to pick up this tenth and final plague. I just want to cover a couple of bits and pieces. This is an amazing account where we see the absolute supremacy of Yahweh. He has and always has been and always will be all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-seeing. But the Egyptians, Pharaoh, his officials, Egypt, they didn't know that. They did by the end of the ten plagues. There was a complete shift in power. A complete change around. And we notice a number of things in this account that make it uncomfortable. The first one is actually regarding Pharaoh's heart. Because what we notice if you read carefully through the account is you notice that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But on 18 occasions it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that makes it quite uncomfortable for me. Because I quite like to be king of my own heart. 
I quite like to think that I make my own choices, that I'm in charge of my desires. But what we learn from this passage is not just that God has absolute sovereign power over all created things, but he is actually also the king of every single person and every single heart. And our very ability to respond to God is on the basis of what God first does in our own hearts. None of us here, not one single one of us here, responded to God because we thought he was a good idea. We responded to God because out of his immeasurable grace and kindness to us, he softened our hearts and he opened our eyes and he unstopped our ears so that we could not only see but respond. The God that we serve totally is the King of Kings and he totally is the Lord of Lords and there is none like him. I don't know, do you, do you find it uncomfortable? I do. The truth that we find time after time in the Bible, the Bible is clear about it, is that we are responsible for our actions, but that God is in control of them. And, and in my limited mind and understanding, I find it hard sometimes to bring these two things together, but the Bible says both these things are true. There will be a day when I stand before God and give an account for what I've said, what I've done, and how I've lived. But actually, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is totally sovereign over my life, and he controls. He knit me together in my mother's womb. He's preordained all the days that I should live. And he says the very time when I will go to be with him in glory. He, he covers the whole spectrum. He is other than me. He is other than you. And that's hard at times. But it also brings great security. Great confidence. One of the biggest, most difficult times for me in my life was when my father died a number of years ago in an unexpected, in an unexpected time. It, was, it, it felt inappropriate timing. It was wrong. He shouldn't have died at that age. I can remember in the weeks after working it through, why God has it happened, yet knowing God that you are in control. Questioning, shouting out at God, saying, God, it's not right, it's not fair. Can't you see the effect it's having on those that I love? Can't you see the effect it's having on me? God, this cannot be right, and yet knowing that the Bible is clear that my loving father owns all of my days. He owned all of my father's day from the first day to the last day are his. And the amazing promise in Romans 8.28 that at times is so hard to grab hold of but is such a strength, knowing that in all things, in all things, in every single thing, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And I, I, if I was planning things, I don't know if I'd have done it the way that God did. But in all things, God works for good. And my response as a son, I still have the questions, but my response as a son is to say, Father, I love you and I trust you. I just don't get it, but I know you're good and I know you'll never let me go. 
And maybe one day I will understand why these things have happened. At the moment, I don't. And in the uncertainty and the, uh, and the questioning, oh God, I choose to worship you anyway because you are worthy. Now, did I do that well? Did I do it perfectly? No. You work your way through it in the uncertainty. But God is sovereign. He is con- in control. He owns your days from the first to the last. And the other thing is, just out of this, why ten plagues? Have you ever thought that? Why didn't God just do one plague? You know, why ten? You know, do you think, do you think Pharaoh was just a bit tougher than God thought? He got it wrong first time. Right, okay, Nile to blood, that'll do it. Oh no, no, Pharaoh's a bit tougher and it took him nine times and in the tenth one he got it right. No, actually, it's not that. The Bible tells us why. God used the plagues to reveal who, who he is. God used the plagues to reveal God as God. That opening line that Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? After the tenth plague, Pharaoh says to Moses, Moses, and bless me too. There was a complete turnaround. And this this didn't just echo around Egypt. Forty years later, by the time that um, Joshua, no, it's not Joshua, by the time that Israel gets to Jericho and sends in the two spies, Rahab says, We've been waiting 40 years quaking in fear because we know that the God of the Hebrews is the God of all gods and the King of all kings. He's the God that parted the Red Sea. God used these things to reveal his absolute sovereignty and power. Pharaoh's stubbornness and the ten plagues are used to reveal God as God. His sovereign power, his wisdom... Over a few months, Egypt's economy is decimated. Its powerful army is destroyed. Moses doesn't lift a hand in violence. Israel didn't take up arms. They stood and watched as God delivered his people from a powerful enemy, an enemy too powerful for them. So what about us? What does it say to us? Do you know what? We have a great victor who has won a powerful victory for us, Jesus Christ. There are many aspects to the wonderful salvation we have that we enjoy and we revel in, but one of the ones that we sometimes forget is that Jesus has crushed our enemies. He has magnificently defeated them. He has disarmed the powers and authorities He has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. And just as Pharaoh was clearly disarmed and beaten, so God's enemies have today. Christ won a spectacular victory on the cross over Satan and all of his demonic hordes, and we live in the good of that victory here today. This isn't a victory that's won by us living a good life. 
It's not a victory won by kind words um, or, or diligence or effort. It's not, it's not like Israel really participated in the victory they won. They did. They stood by and watched as their magnificent God overthrew their evil oppressors. And in the same way, how could we ever think that we added anything to this salvation other than our brokenness, slavery, and sin. But Jesus Christ, our Christus Victor, our mighty one, on the cross defeated death and sin and Satan and rose again victoriously, proving that he has won the victory. And that is what we are part of. The big victories have been won. It's done. It's finished. He's he's won it. It's true for you. You were included in Christ. Jesus' victory on the cross demonstrates God's utter sovereignty over all. He has triumphed over all the powers that seek to oppose him. And one day every knee will bow before him. God fights on our behalf and wins battles that we could never win on our own. He does. And today we stand in the victory. Are there still skirmishes? Are there still things that we're doing up? Are we still mopping stuff up? Does it sometimes feel like the battles that we're facing are big? Yes, it does. But the war has been decided. The outcome is definite. Christ has won. Satan has been crushed under his feet. Jesus is the name above every other name. And we here right now, we are part of his kingdom, sharing the good news about what he has done, continuing to push out, taking God's kingdom, his rule and reign into neighborhoods and schools and workplaces where where that victory hasn't yet been appropriated, but, but it's still certain, it's still definite. And I think for some of us, and what I would love you to get on the back of this is, sometimes I think we are still waiting for another victory. When God does this, and I know there's personal things we are all working through, but let's size it up with what God has already done. He has won. He has won. And and the reason... We do not grieve like those with no hope. It's because we can be certain that Christ's victory is effective. It is definite. It will bring to fruition. For dear Fred and Samuel, who fought the good fight, run the race, pressed on to get the prize, we can be certain because it's God's victory, not their effort. They were amazing men, But they weren't good enough to defeat Satan, but Jesus Christ was. And that's why we can be so certain. I am a child of God. I am a member of Christ's body. I am a saint. I have direct access to God. I am free from condemnation. I cannot be separated from God's love. I've been given a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. I am God's workmanship. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why? Because I rest on what Christ has done. And he has defeated my enemies. Can I invite the band back up please? That would be great. And can the rest of us stand? 
This is what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. And as you go on your holidays over the next few weeks, I would love you to take this away with you. If you feel comfortable too, why don't you just close your eyes? You can raise your hands as well. This is what it says in Philippians 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want to thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have won the victory. Lord, I want to thank you. Your resurrection from the dead 2,000 years ago proves it. I want to thank you that you are seated in heavenly places right now, ruling and reigning. And we say, Lord, we don't put our trust in our abilities or, or whether I'm able or not. I put my trust in who you are, what you've done, and where you are seated now. Lord, I ask for grace right now. Lord, that even on the back of just seeing the, the, the ten plagues and your mighty victory there, when we see, look at your cross and all you've done, I ask you, Lord Jesus, would you please help us to resize our problems in light of them? Lord, please forgive us when our problems have grown in our minds out of proportion. I say that with respect doesn't mean they don't hurt, that they're not painful, that there isn't confusion, that there isn't why questions. But I pray, Lord God, that even now that we would enthrone you yet again this morning in our hearts, at the center of our lives, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the place where you are. We recognize the place where you are. I pray, give us faith to see you in that place where we're battling. We ask for that in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Why don't we respond as we worship and sing and then I'll hand back to Paul.